www.weru.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the main main major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, on my bookshelf since 1976, there's a, a, a volume called Tell It Goodbye, Kiddo. And it was about the decline of the New England offshore fishery. And today, some would say that fishery is all but gone. But every so often, you get a, a glimmer of hope. And one of those glimmers comes about every time I talk with folks folks at Penobscot East, which is a fisheries resource center based in Stonington. And I'm happy to welcome one of those folks here to the studio this morning. Welcome back, Aaron Darity, um, who is uh, the fisheries resource uh, coordinator at Stonington uh, Penobscot East. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks. Good morning, Ron. Good to be here. And we've talked a lot about um, uh, these kinds of things in the past. I think one of the last shows we did, um, you were talking about um, uh, kind of l- local connections between consumers and fishermen. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, today we'll be talking about a way in which you and, at Penobscot East and others are trying to encourage people to get back into um, the ground fishery. Yeah, exactly. Um, Penobscot East Resource Center has been around for a few years now, and our mission is to secure a future for the fishing communities in this region in eastern Maine from the islands of Penobscot Bay to Canada. And I'm specifically working on this project called the Down East Groundfish Initiative. I've been directing this now for a little over four years. And the purpose of that is to, to build a rebuild a, a viable, sustainable ground fishery and to, um, to, again, restore some of the fisheries diversity that has existed in these communities. Um, up, until, up until the recent history, it's been around. And, and we're now um, almost completely dependent in the, in the fishing communities of eastern Maine on just a single fishery, which is a precarious situation. And, um, and you know, every, everyone around here knows that that's lobster. That's, uh, that's, that's an important economic driver for the region. And um, there need to be some other options available as well. So groundfish is, is one of those that we're working on right now. And, and when um, you say groundfish, again, not all listeners are familiar with that particular term. Sure. They might see a groundfish in the supermarket but isn't labeled groundfish. So what are we talking about? It's not, about? right. No, it's... Uh, it's, it's um, a lot of the whitefish that people are familiar with, it's the cod, the haddock, uh, flounders, pollock, hake, um, redfish, those are some of the most common ones. Halibut's another one, um, popular where, where one Where did that name here. come from, groundfish, as a grouping? Where did that name come from? Sure. Well, I think it's just, you know, that they're all their, their bottom-dwelling fish that you tend to catch together if you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you're targeting one that you could, you could expect to get several of them together. So they kind of group them by by um, how they're uh, grouping together rather than a, by a species. Yeah, it's the same same type of habitat. Exactly, mm-hmm. they're all bottom dwellers. And when we talk about a fishery, I assume we're talking both about the fish mm-hmm. and the people who 
catch fish. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this area in eastern Maine um, was incredibly productive for ground fish and, and a lot of other things as well, herring, scallops. Um, and again, everyone's familiar with lobster today. And that uh, the diversity uh, disappeared in part because the resource disappeared. Um, starting in, some would say, uh, the 80s, uh, some would say the 90s, and it's, it's probably been in decline for a while. But um, uh, fishermen weren't able to catch as much of those, those, those species, the cod, the haddock, the flounders. Is that because we tended to fish them out? I mean, was that part of the global trend? I remember referring, uh, referring back to that Tell It Goodbye uh, kiddo book. That was really talking about um, what was happening offshore um, in many ways. And, right. And the fact that we had a change in, in how we began to manage our offshore fishery out to 200 miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. Anytime you've got a, a resource, whether it's fisheries or anything else, um, there's always a challenge of, of managing it, keeping it sustainable. And uh, to this day, I, I think that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, there's been improvements and a lot of ways we've gone kind of backwards, but we're always uh, struggling with how best to, uh, to conserve that resource. But you're absolutely right. I think it's, um, it's too much uh, fishing pressure in some ways. It's, uh, it's, it's um, impact on the bottom habitat and catching some of the spawning fish. And there's probably other factors at play as well. Certainly global warming is, um, is, a, is a bigger one now that a lot more people are talking about. But uh, through the 70s and 80s and 90s, I think that uh, overfishing um, probably, probably played a, a big part of it and, and also catching some of the forage stocks uh, more recently, at, at least in the 90s, that those ground fish uh, depend upon. And when I say forage stocks, I mean uh, the, the, the food for the ground fish, which uh, a lot of times includes... Um, Atlantic herring. Um, it's also in the past included uh, the river herring, the alewives and, uh, and shad and blueback and some of those fish that would migrate up and down the mm. river seasonally. Mm. And we're certainly seeing struggles um, how to restore those those fish as well. Um, yeah. Getting passage upstream so that they can go to the lakes where they where they spawn. Right. Yeah. No question. And, and I think that. Uh, you know, uh, groups like Penobsc- uh, Penobscot River Restoration Trust are mm. making great strides mm-hmm. in that and, and uh, opening up more mm-hmm. anadromous fish runs. And one of the things that we're really interested in is is to see when the Penobscot River um, opens up more, when there's, you know, there's, I think, a couple dams coming down and a fishway being built around one of them. That's not only uh, great progress for the for the watershed, the Penobscot River watershed, but also for the marine ecosystem that that uh, historically has depended upon those those fish migrating up and down the river. And and I think when the when the Kennebec was opened up again, um, people noticed some major changes there. And I think that uh, in the next few years we're going to witness some some changes here in Eastern Maine as well. I certainly hope so. Mm. Well, let's take you back to the the beginnings of this particular project mm-hmm. and talk about um, why you um, started to get involved. What were some of the steps you took on early on, and then we'll bring things up to speed for this new uh, program where you're trying to attract new entrants. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that that sounds good. This has been uh, definitely an evolution. This this project and. It's been trying to address uh, two major issues. The one that we just started talking about is the lack of fish in eastern Maine, the lack of ground fish, uh, cod, haddock, and flounders. But also, along with that, the management changes have resulted in a lack of access, a lack of the rights for fishermen to be able to catch the fish. So historically, and up until the mid-'90s, fishermen really didn't need a permit. They didn't... um, 
there, there essentially were no permits for, for most of history. And as there were more and more fishermen um, and fewer and fewer fish to catch, this, uh, the permitting structure was created and, and, it, and regulations were, um, had become more strict over time to the point where they were cutting back the uh, amount of time that fishermen could spend on the water or now more recently the amount of pounds of fish that any fisherman can catch. But along the way, fishermen have found that through not catching fish, the fishery managers uh, decided to not allow them to catch fish in the future. It's a way to prevent um, additional, uh, what they call effort or additional fishing pressure on the resource. Well, that may be one way to try to reduce uh, the amount of um, people catching fish or the amount of fish that are caught, but it really has devastating impacts for the communities, as we've seen in eastern Maine. It's, it's really pigeonholing people into uh, catching just one single species, and it's resulted in a loss of diversity. So it's that two-prong approach that we're doing of both addressing the management changes that are needed to allow fish to recover in the area, while also taking steps to rebuild the access so that we can catch those fish in the future. So that that notion of the management structure kind of squeezing people out, basically if you didn't use your permit to catch fish, and you were very likely not to use it because there weren't very many fish to catch. Mm -hmm. As you begin to do that, those licenses kind of get consolidated into fewer and fewer hands. Is that the case? Right, right. Yeah, you can can see the catch-22 there pretty easily. And this has been a story that's played out, I think, first in eastern Maine, but also throughout much of the rest of New England. And we've this fishery in particular, the ground fish fishery, starting out at... Uh, at least 1,500, probably a couple thousand fishermen years ago, is now down to about 400 fishermen today. Um, some would call that uh, progress. Uh, some, would call, some would call that um, a major setback and a loss of uh, community viability for a lot of the communities along the way. If we took a parallel, for instance, um, in, in uh, business, um, we've certainly seen consolidation in lots of different spheres. And again, you, there's, a, there's a double-edged sword. Some would see that as efficient <laughs> right. progress. Um, right. So a bigger bank is better than lots of small banks. Huh, but maybe we don't want all bigger banks, and what does that do to the community? So you're saying that the same story is happening in fisheries. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of parallels. The position that we take at Penobscot East Resource Center is one that's focused on core principles, and the principles are um, supporting the local communities, supporting the resource, and there really is opportunity to rebuild the resource as well as to provide opportunity for fishermen to, to catch the fish. And I think that what's most important is to, to, to stay involved, to, for the managers to keep the, the fishermen in the, in the fishing communities engaged in the process and, and to not try to separate the two because uh, fishermen's stewardship and appropriate, appropriately um, stewarding the resource is, uh, we believe, the, the best key to conservation. And we've certainly seen um, some of that in the lobstering uh, kind of world where years ago people began to take steps that um, would make sure that there was fish, that lobster in the future. Right, yeah. Uh, some classic examples are uh, V-notching lobsters, for example. Any, any female lobster that you catch in a trap, and all lobsters in Maine are caught in traps, um, 
the the tail is notched and that that lobster is thrown overboard if it's if it's a female with eggs on it and it takes a, a couple uh, molt cycles for that V-notch to disappear, and it essentially ensures that there's a, a, a broodstock of uh, lobsters in the ocean. And, and uh, measures like this and the, the minimum size, the maximum size, those have all been uh, great ways to protect the resource and, and protect those lobsters that produce the most lobsters and, uh, and also protecting the habitat using, uh, using uh, traps instead of, uh, instead of catching them you know, in other methods as, uh, as they are in some other places in New England. Mm. So as I recall, um, one of the problems that you kind of first um, encountered and began to address was the notion that um, fisheries permits um, cost a lot of money. Sure. And that um, you were figuring out ways to get access to those permits using other people's money and then figuring out ways to get those into fishermen's hands, new, new fishermen's hands. Is that right? Right, right. yeah. And, and so we've, we've, uh, we've certainly made some progress on that front. We've bought uh, two permits locally that, that, have, uh, that are allocated quota. They're the uh, fisheries managers um, have, have taken these uh, steps to allocate out um, you know, pounds of fish to different permits throughout the region. And we've um, specifically bought two permits that have um, quota or pounds of fish allocated to these permits so that we can we can hold the permit and we can lease the the rights to fish out to area fishermen so that they'll be able to catch them. And the point of that is is really to keep the fishing rights local, to, mm. to keep that anchored here in Maine. We don't want to get to a point where uh, the resource comes back and no one in eastern Maine has the access to be able to catch those. That would be uh, I think that would be devastating. Mm. So this, um, you were buying these permits from existing fishermen? Is that we, how that works? Right. We were buying them from existing fishermen. Um, however, we, we can buy permits uh, for this region really from anywhere in New England, whether it's Maine, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island, and so forth. And so if you didn't buy a fishing permit when it came up, who else might be interested in buying that and, and what are the impacts of that? Sure. Well, uh, let me just give you an example to answer that question. If you look even a few years ago in, in, in all of Maine, so we're not just talking eastern Maine here, but all of Maine, uh, there were about 70, 71 or two uh, boats landing ground fish. And this was only, like I said, a couple of years ago. This past year, there were 40 in landing ground fish in Maine. And we've witnessed this kind of consolidation throughout New England, but it's most pronounced here in the state, and it's um, happened to an extreme in eastern Maine. In Massachusetts, in places like Gloucester, um, in New Bedford, um, in some of those key ports, you see the, the landings at least remain steady, if not increased in some cases, and certainly the profit has increased. So this consolidation results in fishing rights going to the, the fishermen that have the most money or the businesses, not necessarily individual fishermen anymore, but larger businesses that have the most money and, uh, and where they can land in the biggest ports. Um, on the other hand, you're, you're seeing a decline in traditional fishing communities. These kinds of you know, significant, iconic, beautiful places that we call home here in Maine um, that uh, don't longer no longer have uh, the ability to land fish. So that's what we're trying to to rebuild in this in this region is that diversity. Mm. Well, we're going to talk with a couple of fishermen, um, one a little bit older, one a little bit younger, um, in the next uh, few minutes. And why don't you uh, give us a, a kind of a an introduction to to Dwight Carver um, from Jonesport, and then we'll get him on the phone and and talk with him. Yeah, sure. So Dwight Carver is uh, uh, has been a fisherman all his life. Um, he caught, uh, 
well, a, a lot of different things, but caught groundfish back in the, in the 80s. Um, he was a gillnetter for a long time, and there were uh, quite a few gillnetters at that time uh, throughout eastern Maine. It was a, it was a big fishery landing, the, those cod haddock and flounders and so forth. And, uh, and that, was, that was an important part of, uh, of fishing in Jonesport, as it was in Stonington or you know, um, Bar Harbor, Winter Harbor, any of these um, key fishing towns now. And uh, I think the last year that he fished was probably the mid-90s. He's now uh, exclusively a lobster fisherman, and this is a story that you'll hear up and down the coast. But Dwight is, is a big supporter um, of, of rebuilding opportunities, of having opportunities around for young people and making sure that that remains uh, for, for people in Jonesport. So I'll leave it at that, and I'm sure Dwight could uh, introduce himself more. Great. We'll do that in just a second. We'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU at 89.9 and Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And later on, we'll invite you to participate in, in our uh, radio conversation about Beyond Lobster, how to support new entrants in community-scale fisheries in down east Maine. And we are welcome, glad to welcome Dwight Carver to Talk of the Towns this morning. Good morning, Dwight. Good morning. It's so good to talk with you. Um, last I um, talked with you, I think we were dealing with some other community issues in Jonesport. So it's good to be um, uh, coming back to, to fisheries again. Good morning, Dwight. Hey, good morning, Aaron. Tell us a little bit about, um, uh, uh, Aaron introduced you by saying that you had uh, done different kinds of, of uh, fishing over the years, and he mentioned one form of, of catching ground fish, and that was called gill netting. Maybe you could start by explaining how that works. Well, it was an interesting way to fish. Um, uh, I think it got a bad rap over the years, but anyway, beside that, uh, it was a... Uh, uh, I think a, a a good way of release, you know, letting a smaller fish uh, continue to swim through like that. There was a point in time where we uh, we fished too small of a mesh net, and I agree that was bad for the industry, but uh, uh, a wonderful way of going fishing, and and I enjoyed it uh, immensely. It was it was a good way for me to provide financially for my family as my kids were growing up. Uh, a, a wonderful way during the summer months to make a good living and and to be off on the ocean uh when the sun is breaking up over the water and uh sailing home with a with a good catch in your boat uh is quite uh gratifying and and makes you feel like you uh, you're doing something for your family and so what what changed how did how did that um that situation change for you uh getting into toward the into the 90s uh you know the numbers of of ground fish were dwindling. Yet the car, the price was going up. Uh, what we were catching, we were getting uh, more for our product. So we were still doing pretty well financially up into the early '90s. And then here in in the community where I live, Beals and Jonesport, it's uh, it almost like the the, the ground fish uh, depleted to a point that uh, it really by the last year I fished was 1998. And we did okay, but I mean there was only two two boats in town. There was only two of us fishing that year, but uh, just we had to travel uh, farther away from home. I think you know the shortest sail I was making then was, and I was just a day boat, thirty six foot boat at that time, and the shortest sail I made was twenty three to twenty five miles, and so you were spending four to five hours a day just standing at the wheel and, and steering a boat. And 
it made for long days, and and the lobstering had increased to the point where you know we could we could do that for for the year and and make enough to get to get by. Whereas years ago, when lobstering wasn't that good, you know you had to do other jobs mm. to to make ends meet. But it lobstering has made a tremendous uh, it's uh, it's just been incredible in the last fifteen years. So I no longer needed to do it, and the groundfish just aren't coming in here now. Yeah. So, uh, why don't you, could you describe um, what life was like in Jonesport Beals uh, growing up as a kid? What what did you see on the water? How did you get started in fishing? Um, did you do that as a kid? Yeah, my dad has always been a fisherman, and and uh, living on the island here in Beals, it you had so many opportunities when I was a kid. You know, you could dig clams, you could dig worms, you could go uh, with somebody in a boat. Uh, it was just a, a great place to grow up, and there was a, a lot. There were a lot of there were a lot of jobs that were available for people at that time here. A lot, anything that was in the ocean that was sellable, you know, you had a, a right and a privilege to go and and uh, pursue that and uh, make a living. Mm. And so you, you're you're describing both a, a vibrant fishery, but about also sounded like a vibrant community. Oh, heaven, yes, we had. Uh, of course, I mean, this is <laughs> the way of the world. We've all gone to the Walmart and the Sam's and all of that. But, I mean, you know, being an island community and, and people didn't travel 50 to 80 miles every day just to, you know, go shopping or whatever back then. People didn't make a lot of money, even though we had we had opportunity to work. But, you know, we had, uh, well, real quick, we had uh, three, three grocery stores, uh, uh, Thirteen boat shops, uh, wooden you know, building wooden boats. We had uh, uh, a few garages here on the island. Now there is there is zero. There's there's nothing here. There's there's not a store on the island. You couldn't buy a quart of milk here. You, uh, uh, I mean, in Jonesport, like likewise. When I was a kid, there were three sardine factories working in town. Um, they had their own uh, people sold automobiles in town. There was. It was uh, uh, happening, you know, things were happening. You, and, you didn't have to go out of Beals and Jonesport to, to do things. And, and basketball was, was big back then, too? <laughs> that's, that's always been big. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that hasn't changed. I'm glad no. that hasn't changed. So um, as you look at the situation now, and you've experienced the situation um, earlier when there was that diversity, you could make a living um, from different kinds of, of uh, uh, fish, um, what, what, what do you what do you sense is the future? Where do you where do you see the future oh, heading? Oh, we at this point in time, uh, again, lobstering is incredible. Uh, you know, we wish we were getting more for our product. And young fellows who are willing to work, if if they get their license before they're eighteen, mm. uh, there's quite an opportunity in that business. But it's it's ninety percent of what makes this community go is out of a lobster so that's pretty scary you know as i've said had i it were i'd have a, a son I'm, I'm getting up there now a few years 57 but if i were a young man and i had a son coming along or a daughter that was interested uh i wouldn't discourage him discourage them from getting a lobster license mm. but i would most certainly encourage them to have another trade mm-hmm. don't just uh come out of high school and go fishing get another trade because I'm not so naive as to think that something can't happen down the road or that we're, we won't ride this high that we're on right now forever. I mean, it's just 
nature. You know, I mean, anything can happen. Well, it sounds like you're describing a town that's that's being very close to a Millinocket, which is dependent on one particular exactly. industry. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah well, well, I'm going to say 90% dependent on the lobster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that would be a fair yeah. assessment. And and so um, you certainly know some of the things that Penobscot East and and Aaron and his colleagues are doing. Right. Uh, what are your, some of your thoughts about their efforts? I I applaud them uh, because uh, I said for a while, you know, with the with the politi- political side of it, I felt like burying my head in the sand and, <clears throat> and just I was so so discouraged with everything. But uh, they kind of had a ray of hope, uh, you know, trying to create something for the future of, of the communities along the coast because it's a great life look i mean it's not for everyone but this is a, a a great place to live and uh we need we need privileges for our young people other than just lobstering i mean lobstering is great like i say if, it, if it stayed this way why we're in we're on easy street for a long time we can we can have a very financially productive area but you know that could change and are you seeing uh, on the water? Are you seeing any changes that give you some some hope, or are, are some of your buddies um, seeing some of those changes? Well, I was mentioning to Aaron uh, uh, that I even I talked with a young man who fishes in historically an area where there are a few haddock, and I mean I I don't see much for uh, ground fish. You know, now uh, we get a few codfish early in the spring uh, around the hard bottom that been there through the through the winter and like that when we put on a fresh bait they'll they'll go in but for the most part we don't see many but a young man told me that he's been catching uh some small haddock in his traps this past two years and it's in an area that historically there, there were haddock there back when you know when i was a kid which sounds good because that's the first i've heard of it and uh and also there's guys that drag wrinkles here that have quite small mesh in the in the nets, and they said they're getting some small cod and things like that. So uh, that that's wonderful if we can have access to them when mm. the time comes. You know, that would be great. Right. It seems like you've just hit on something else that's that's in danger, and that's the knowledge of where fish used to be. Um, if they weren't there when um, people in in um, ten years ago were fishing. Um, you've got that knowledge, but they don't. How do we pass that on without giving any trade secrets away? Oh, the, the young fellows, are, they're, they're smart. Uh-huh. They, they'll find them. It, and, and for the most part, like I say, what we worked on uh, back when I was a young fellow and whatnot, we worked on a, a migratory uh, pattern of fish that uh, if a feed came up through here, uh, they would they would migrate with the feed. Uh, we're seeing less and less feed, and I think that's the reason why that because they do have ground fish in, in southern Maine and, and lower part of New England. We're just not seeing them up here, and I think a lot of that is, is we don't have the migration of the, of the herring and the feed that the, that the ground fish would pursue. So if, if um, fish come back, um, fishermen will figure out where they are. Oh, yes. You haven't got to worry about that. They'll find them. Yeah. No, okay. they're, they're good. We have, we have the stuff to work with that will, that will help them do that, too. Aaron, is there anything you want to um, check in with Dwight about? Any any questions you have for, for Dwight at this point? Well, uh, Dwight, it's always great to hear you um, describe, you know, the, the value of this for the communities. And, um, you know, when, when I was I was up there, uh, I don't know when it was, several months, a year or so ago, we had a meeting. We are talking about ground fish. And uh, what was striking to me is that uh, the fishermen in your generation in the room, uh, just like you're describing now, were, were – uh, 
recounting some great stories of catching fish when there was a lot of abundance there, and then some of the younger fishermen said, I wouldn't even know what a haddock looks like today. Right. So big, big changes for sure, and um, well, hopefully it can start to go in the other direction. That would be, that would be awesome if, if some young fellows could do it. I know it's, uh, you've heard me say, I've always felt like I was, I was living in a great place in the world, and I'm one of the luckiest men that ever, ever walked in, in two shoes. So mm-hmm. I would like to think that some other young fellows could, could have the same life I've had. Well, Dwight, thanks so much for taking some time to, to be with us on Talk of the Towns this morning. Hey, you welcome. Okay. Dwight Carver. Dwight Carver from Jonesport Beals, um, a fisherman. And we're talking about um, how to support new entrants into a community-scale fishery. And our guest here in the studio is Aaron Doherty from Penobscot East uh, Resource Center in Stonington. Um, Aaron, what, what you've, you've talked about trying to buying permits and then kind of leasing um, the rights to fish to, to new entrants. What are the, some of the things you're thinking about now in terms of encouraging new entrants? And then we'll talk um, um, a little bit later with Steve Brown from Cherryfield. Sure. So the basic idea is pretty simple. Penobscot East buys some permits. We hold on to the permits, and a sort of uh, land trust could be a, an analogy. Uh, but different from that analogy, we end up leasing out the quota, the, the, the poundage of fish of these various stocks, the cod, haddock, flounders, and so forth area fishermen so that they'll have the access to be able to catch them. So getting into the details a little bit, the, the one of the hurdles is that we can't lease to someone unless they have a permit themselves. That permit doesn't necessarily need to have any quota attached to it. It could just simply be a permit that says they're federally recognized to be able to, to catch ground fish. So um, the the other the other piece of of this uh, project, and we received uh, some funding recently from the um, uh, Fisheries Innovation Fund of the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, uh, to be able to do some business planning with area fishermen, um, and this is everything from thinking about um, what they might be able to make in in revenue, um, in especially considering that there aren't many fish around right now, um, what the what the costs are in terms of um, you know, running your boat, any any bait if you're going to be uh, doing that style of fishing or you know what type of gear you would need and um, and all of these things to really work it out on paper before you take the risks of actually going out on the water to do it. Because uh, in the old days, that was the style. I mean, you basically, right. if your father or your uncle um, was a fisherman and you had kind of that kind of education from them, you mm-hmm. got a skiff and you went out and, and right. put some traps in the water or you went fishing with them. Right. Well, another big change today besides, you know, while well, Dwight was mentioning uh, the, lack of, the lack of fish and how that's a major change, the other major change is management right now. Mm. And it's, it's not as easy, uh, even if there were a lot of fish around, it's not, as, it's not as straightforward as just going and catching the fish and bringing fish ashore. You, your success as a fisherman is no longer determined simply by how many fish you can catch or how well you can catch those fish but also how successful you can be on, on the, the shore side of things, the, the, the business planning. And uh, that's a big change. It's a, it's a cultural shift. It's, it's something that, that wasn't needed before, and, mm. and it is now, and, um, it, at least in ground fish. So that's what, what we're working on as well. I think of um, uh, fishing as a board game. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> on, you know, you've got the thing out, and there's so many more traps and tricks and things that you'd have to know right. in order to get around the board yeah. um, to collect $200 and get, get your next chance. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And yeah. Ho- hopefully no... Uh, no, go directly to jail. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, well, let's let's talk with another uh, fisherman, Steve Brown. Um, give us a little bit of background on Steve before we talk with him. Sure. So, 
Uh, Steve was, I, I, had, I had talked to a, a few other fishermen in the area. Um, Cappy Sargent is one that I spoke to who recommended Steve Brown. He said, you know, he, he's a great fisherman, knows what he's doing on the water, um, a good uh, hook fisherman. And, and we were doing this project, the Sentinel Hook Fishery, um, for a couple reasons. One, the, the surveys that come up this way, the, um, the boats that uh, trawl, they use trawl gear, uh, dragging a net across the bottom really to see what kind of fish there are in the water. So these are, these are scientists basically working exactly. either at the state level or the federal level doing trawl surveys. Right. Yeah. So th- these, these happen, like you said, on both levels. And, and they catch fish. They get a, a really a snapshot of what's going on here in the resource. And that goes into uh, what's called a stock assessment process to determine how many fish people can catch in any given year. Well, the problem up this way is that those surveys uh, can't really trawl in a lot of areas because it's rocky bottom. They'll end up tearing up the net. There's a lot of uh, a lot of other fishing gear in the water, um, traps and so forth. And um, and there also isn't any. There's no one catching ground fish, as we said. So there's not that whole stream of information is is missing. So we've started this project now to work with a couple fishermen. Um, to to go fishing, and we're we're um, supporting their fishing operations so that they can gather more information on a, on a really fine scale local level of exactly what's there, um, how are these fish different from what m- might be in other places, and we'll begin to get the information that will create better management in this area, better management in this area, so that as the fish recover we'll have the tools in place to be able to, to sustain that population, to keep it healthy. And so Steve Brown is a fisherman from Cherryfield who fished with, uh, with this project this year, uh, setting 2,000 hooks every day uh, for 30 days uh, throughout the summer. And uh, it's a, a traditional style of fishing, very sustainable, was used here for, for centuries, really. Um, so I'd, I'll, again, I'll let him describe himself a little more. Great. Well, uh, Steve, welcome to Talk of the Towns this morning. Good morning. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how you got started with fishing, and then we'll go a little bit further into the central, sentinel um, uh, hook fishery that you've um, been helping with. But tell us how you got started in fishing. Well, I guess uh, just my dad taking me when I was younger, and uh, from there I just always had an interest in the ocean and catching fish. Yeah. 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 And and um, so earlier we heard from Dwight Carver who talked about um, gill netting as one way to catch ground fish. Um, this hook fishery is a different way of catching fish. Could could you describe that a little bit? How it actually works? How how a hook fishery actually works? Yeah, well, we have all our sub trawls previously baited on shore, and uh, so those yeah. are, those are lines that you've got it in a uh, kind of round in a tr- in a tub that have already been baited. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yep. We have 250 hooks on a on a on a trawl. We put eight together, uh-huh. and uh, we have a M line on each end with high flies, and we set that uh, usually before slack water, either high or low tide, uh, when the fish usually are feeding the most. And uh, it's about two miles long, and uh, we'll set it out and let it fish through the tide and. When we think, you know, there might be some fish on there, we'll haul it back. If there seems to be bait still on the hooks, we'll we'll let it down for a little longer and and, uh, haul back through it and and see what we have. Great. And so you were doing this um, this summer um, over a period of time. What were some of the things that you um, caught? What what, what did you see? Well, mostly we saw 
White Hague, uh, which, you know, traditionally a, a lot of sub years ago would target. Um, not so many cod. More haddock than cod this year, which I was surprised to see that maybe the haddock would uh, would be coming back before before the codfish. But uh, definitely the White Hake, uh, the most... Uh, 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 dominant of the species is what we found. And, and hake is a really good eating fish. Um, uh, we, we've kind of gotten accustomed to, to going to hake if, if other species aren't available. Uh, hake is a great fish. And, uh, and uh, I just saw in a local supermarket that hake is actually worth more than haddock. You know, yeah. it's, it's uh, locally down East Maine, it was really a traditional, traditional fare. Mm. So, um, as you participated in, in this this uh, hook fishery, um, you were drawing on a, a longer tradition. Um, but do you see that as a possible way to go um, into the future, using really, ho- using hooks? That is, yeah, I, I really do. I think I think the face of ground fishing is going to is, is going to change, and I think it's going to gravitate towards maybe smaller boats, a little less horsepower. You know, with the with the expense of the fuel. And I think it's going to be uh, more of more of a a business where the fisherman catches the fish, brings it in, maybe even you know has a small fillet house mm. and and moves that fish throughout the area, uh, you know, on a local level. It, I don't, I can't see, especially until the numbers come back on the fish. You know, trying to get the most out of that that fillet, I think, is going to be the key. Well, it seems like you're describing a very strong parallel with um, small farms in Maine. Um, the idea that um, we saw lots of consolidation in farms and they got bigger and bigger and then they shipped all their stuff to somewhere else to be processed and then we would buy it in the supermarkets. You're describing the same situation um, for fishing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, like I said, until the fish come back into any great numbers, uh, if you can go get 500 pounds of fish and and market that yourself. I think, you, you know, you can make a good day's pay. Really, you really can. Mm, mm. So how might you um, um, participate? And Aaron, you can get involved in this yeah. conversation. How might somebody like Steve um, take advantage of this new entrance program um, that you've, you've, you've got beginning to design? Yeah, well, uh, good morning, Steve. Um, you know, we Steve and I met along with... Uh, uh, several other fishermen a couple weeks ago in Ellsworth and, and talked a little bit about this project. And, um, you know, in, in, in uh, straightforward, honest terms, uh, considering that, you know, there's not a lot of fish, so it's not as if uh, anyone expects to go out and make a lot of money. But, Steve, as you just, just described, um, if there are enough fish around and if you can get more money for the fish, uh, then then maybe you can make a day's pay out of it. And so that's exactly what we're just starting to try to explore um, you know, one of the things that was, was interesting to me uh, from your fishing this year, Steve, is that you saw some of the uh, other fish around that are not necessarily in other parts in the Gulf of Maine. I mean, uh, just tell us for a second about uh, halibut in, uh, in skates, and um, how, did, you, did you see many of them? Well, yeah, I've, you know, heard that uh, barn door skates are uh, in decline and they're very rare. We actually caught quite a few barn door skates in the I, I really had never caught any before. Of course, I'd, I'd never fished uh, in that deep of water with uh, fine hooks as we did. And uh, 
it was it was pretty neat to see that, that you know the barn doors. We also caught some uh, Greenland halibut, which uh, are pretty much a subarctic fish, and uh, I've seen them in shrimp trawls in the winter, but I've never actually caught any on hooks till this year. It's kind of interesting to see that there are other species out there that uh, we really didn't know were there. So, so Steve, one of the things that that we're working on is this uh, business planning, and I was just describing that with Ron here about um, you know how there's there's more of the business side of things, and it's it's uh, fishing and ground fish anyway um, is is less about just going out and catching as many fish as you can, and more now about um, some of the business side of things. Um, what what do you think about? Why are you interested in in uh, in doing the the business planning and looking into ground fish? Could you just tell us about that for a minute? I guess uh, I've never really been a large scale fisherman, and I've always tried to you know make do with what we what we caught. There was a whole lot, but uh, I'm not big highline or anything. So uh, just getting the most out of the catch has always been you know my focus, but. Uh, like I said before, if a, if, if a person can catch several, you know, several hundred pounds and uh, maybe have a small fillet house or you know, little processing area that they can uh, they can move these fish out to the community and in restaurants, I, I think that you know it, it's a great small business that maybe there's an opportunity here. And and Cherryfield has got that um, connection to the food industry, um, for for blueberries and and used to can other products. So there's there's a natural sense that um, you ought to be doing something with what you bring in locally. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I I think it's uh, people want fish. People want locally caught uh, fish. It, it's definitely something that it hasn't been available for a while. You know, it's. It's it's frozen haddock. It's most of the stuff at the at the big supermarkets is previously previously frozen, and uh, I really think there's a value and in a need for that for that fish in, in the area. Steve, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I was just talking to somebody else from another organization who works on these kinds of things the other day, and and she was saying, you know. If uh, if if you sell your fish at uh, you know say a, a traditional dealer where there's fish landed from a big boat that may may be coming off of George's Bank along with some of the smaller boats that fish inshore in the Gulf of Maine, there's a little bit of a price distinction, but it's not nearly the sort of distinction that you would expect for you know on the one hand you've got day boat super fresh high quality catch on the other hand you've got some fish that have come off of a big dragger from George's Bank that may have been sitting on that boat um, on ice, of course, but still five, six days or so. Um, you know, do you think that that's a key as well? I mean, that 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 stands out for me. We need we need to get some more money for that for this local quality fish. Absolutely. I mean, quality is everything to me in in, in the fishing industry, and uh, if you can bring that, uh, people people want it. No one likes a stinky fish. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yep. You know, I've, I got some recently, and we threw it out because after a day in the fridge, it was gone. You know, it's we really need it. We need it in the area. 
And how about other, other um, and perhaps younger fishermen? Do you see uh, the potential for kind of getting them interested in, in going fishing for ground fish again? Oh, certainly. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things, uh, especially, especially if the lobsters don't uh, hang on the way they do. I know they're doing great, but uh, things change. It's going to be good to have another thing to step into. Mm. And one thing that's been pretty clear for me anyway is this this none of this work is about convincing people of anything i mean I, we're not we're not in the business of twisting people's arms to take it into a fishery but it's certainly more about uh taking a look at opportunities and then if you know if there's um if there's money to be made in ground fish if there's fish to be caught there you know no question up and down the coast people are going to be um interested in this for sure and and that's uh there's got to be opportunities, and that's really what we're working on today. And there's got to be some some pioneers to take the first step. And so, uh, Steve, thank you uh, for you know for your interest in it and sort of helping to take the first step there. And oh, and, yep. and Steve, what's your hope for for Cherryfield? Cherryfield's a, a place that's that's uh, got some great traditions, but um, probably a little bit like Jonesport Beals, um, fishing has has gone to that that the lobster fishery only. Um, what are your hopes for this kind of effort um, that, that could mean some things for Jonesport? I mean, for for Cherryfield. Well, really, for, for all these uh, small harbors along the coast, it would be great to see uh, a small boat, a boat, bringing in fish. It, it would really be great to see it everywhere from, you know, Lubeck to, to Rockland, you know, down east. It would be great to see... Uh, these communities are benefiting from the ocean again with the ground fish. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's got to start on the small scale. You know, we don't we don't have any uh, any small fi- uh, business to buy fish anymore. There's none of these little stores that that sell locally caught fish, which I think is is too bad. And the, the supermarkets, um, you know, they they need something that's got a steady supply, and so they tend to go for um, a place where they can, where they can get that, which is often a distributor from Boston or something like that. And the crazy thing is, you know, f- historically fish that would be caught up here might be sent down to Portland, maybe it would go to Boston and then it would get, you know, a few more days, it might come back up this way. And then eventually you'd see it in the supermarket and it's kind of, you know, you don't necessarily know where it comes from, but, uh, what, one of the things you're describing here, Steve, is, is a different approach. And R- Ron and I were talking about that um, on this on this program. And there's there's options to do a lot more things when you start out on a small scale. You can be a little creative. So, Steve, thanks so much for, for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Oh, thanks, good. Steve. Okay, that was Steve Brown, a fisherman from Cherryfield, Maine. And we're here talking about Beyond Lobster, how to support new entrants in community-scale fisheries in down east Maine. And our guest in the studio is Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Fisheries Center in Stonington. And uh, he's describing um, a whole suite of efforts that will bring back um, both fish and uh, fishing um, in the down east Maine community. Um, Aaron, I remember um, Elmer Beal, who is now a professor at College of Atlantic um, from the Beal family in Southwest Harbor, telling that story in in 1975-76 about the fish that would leave main ports, go to Boston, and then sure. we get to buy it back. Right. So that's not a new phenomenon. That's a, that's a pretty established um, situation. And so you, like small farmers, are trying to f- make more connections between the producers of fish and con- consumers. Right. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, the other thing about, uh, about Elmer Beal is that uh, he, 
when he was a child or a teenager, or I don't know exactly when, but he used to fillet fish mm -hmm. and. Uh, flaying hake was a, a big part of what he, what he, or what I've heard uh, is what he did as a as a kid. Um, one of our observers who was on the Sentinel fishery um, rented a room from 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 Elmer over on uh, MDI and got to hear a little bit more about that history. And the funny thing is, today nobody really knows how to fillet fish very well. So mm -hmm. it's a, again a piece of. Uh, that culture and that that history, that uh, tradition here in Eastern Maine, that's been lost. So, so when you were doing some of the uh, community scale or uh, community supported fisheries, right, you were actually having to teach people how to take sure. care of the fish, um, um, so that they could they could use it. Yeah, so we did that with shrimp for a couple of years, um, and and that was successful in that I think it connected the local. Um, Local people in different communities, whether it's anywhere from Stonington, Blue Hill, Ellsworth, MDI, um, with fishermen if they hadn't already been familiar with mm. some of the fishermen in, the, in their communities and um, and what a local what a shrimp looks like, you know, right. it, it, it just like fish, you 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 buy this product in the store and it has it, it looks one way. Well, if you get it fresh out of the water, it looks different and. and and uh, with shrimp, it may still be it may still be wiggling. You know, same, it's... same with turkeys and chickens. Right. I'll I'll just introduce um, the the possibility that folks may want to participate as well um, in this uh, conversation about uh, fisheries. Um, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. That's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or locally at 469-0500. If you'd like to participate in our conversation about gaining more entrance into the community-scale fisheries. So this notion of both um, um, kind of gearing fishermen up to, to kind of business planning and then helping them explore local markets, I suppose, is part of the training that you'd be prepared to, to give folks. Yeah, the funding that we've received right now allows us to work with um, an organization to do business planning. We've, so we're going to be contracting with Coastal Enterprises, Inc. out mm -hmm. of Wiscasset. Uh, CEI is a, a very widely recognized um, organization for this kind of business, uh, micro lending and so forth, and, and supporting uh, small uh, startup enterprise. And, um, and so we're going to be um, partnering with them to do this business planning to identify uh, um, fishermen up and down the coast who um, really are, are interested in making that initial investment. And, and it is a little bit of a commitment in terms of, of their time um, to go through uh, and answer questions such as, you know, what might be the cost? Do you have uh, uh, sources of collateral that could be used in, you know, in, in uh, securing a loan to buy to buy a permit if you wanted to go that that route, um, you know what's what's an affordable uh, price for leasing quota? You know, acquiring the rights to catch the fish. So there's a lot of questions that need to be answered along the way, and, and our partner uh, in the, on the project CEI is going to be helping out with that, and that's also um, going to going to strengthen our own um, decision making in our permit bank and how we can best provide. Uh, rights for for local fishermen. Um, so it's an exciting project, and it's it comes down to um, also our ability to be able to raise more money and to buy more permits so that we can have access rights in the future. History shows that these things only get more expensive, and as time goes by, permits will become more expensive. They will be harder to buy. So we're raising money now in the short term so that we can we can secure these permits and access rights for the long term. Great. Um, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you'd like to participate in our conversation, and we do have a caller on the line, uh, please uh, share your name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning. This is uh, Michael from Stonington. And uh, it's been a fascinating show. Um, I wish we had more time so you could talk some more about this 
When I first moved here in 94, there was still a boat or two going out here, and an old gentleman who just died, actually, Ivan Airy, used to come up our driveway with fresh-caught hake off a local boat, which mm. was just about the best fish you could ever have, I have to say. <laughs> but I went on a long sailing trip this year, um, went to Labrador, where the fishery is completely closed, and the whole coast is in disarray, and uh, only snow crab fishing is left there. But, um, but when I got to Iceland, the fishery is alive and well, and I know that, um, that I know Ted Ames, and, uh, and I know Ted would be delighted to know that in Iceland there's a great amount of pride amongst a lot of the fishermen that they just uh, are longliners. Mm. So it's a hook fishery, and uh, it's alive and well and thriving, and um, I, I, think, I think that holds a lot of promise. I know Ted thinks it does, and so a question I've got um, that's come up, and I wonder, I know that bycatch is a huge issue with a lot of styles of fishing, and it's, it, it, it raises a lot, of, um, there's a lot of controversy, both in America and Europe, about bycatch and what to do with it. Is this an issue with longlining? And, um, yeah, I'll hang up and let you talk. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning, Michael. Go ahead, Aaron. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, that, that is a great question, and, and I think um, in pointing out Iceland, Mike pointed out um, some some major differences in, in how uh, that country uh, manages its its fish and, and how uh, it's managed in a lot of other places, including here. So I just I want uh, Iceland to is of, the place where they actually put some bankers in jail last week. <laughs> right, that's pretty good. Well, the, the interesting thing is, you know, they uh, they had uh, commercial fisheries as really the bulk of the economy for a long time, and then you know this banking, this financial thing, uh, built up as a major uh, business, a major driver of the economy in Iceland. Well, when that collapsed, they still had fisheries to go right. back to. They right. still had fisheries diversity and opportunities to get into. But they've, they've gone through some major experiments along the way in terms of uh, privatizing uh, the resource and, and how that's worked out. Well, I think one big difference in Iceland, and I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on it, but they have uh, designated areas, they have um, protection for areas, and they have uh, um, smaller-scale fishermen fish inshore, larger-scale fishermen fish offshore. Mm. It's a, it's a common-sense approach. You know, scale is is a major issue in fisheries, and you can't have one size fits all management that uh, that that covers both the small boats and the big boats because pretty much everybody suffers under that. And we really need uh, a different set of rules. We still need you know accountability. We still need uh, limits on the resource and so forth um, for everybody. But uh, the smaller scale uh, should not be held on held under the same rules as as the larger scale fishermen. But to get back to to Mike's question about bycatch, um, you know, bycatch is is a huge issue in any fishery. That fishermen. means that you're going for one species, but you right. happen to catch some, something else. Right, right, exactly. And and a lot of times, um, it's it's discarded, um, either dead or, or dying uh, bycatch. One of the great things about um, hook fishing and uh, and fishing with traps as well is that oftentimes you can return the fish alive. Not always. Um, there certainly are, are species that, that you can't return alive, but many of them you can. Um, you tend to not catch uh, spawning fish. Again, that's not universally true, but it's you're, you're less likely to catch them than you are with some of the other um, gear types. And, uh, and in general, like the lobster fishery, uh, it's it's a sustainable approach. If you protect the bottom habitat, if you protect those spawning fish, if you protect the the forage base, as um, as Dwight was talking about, then you've got a recipe for success. And whether it's um, 
you know, whether it's a, a few gill nets in, in the appropriate area at the right time, um, you know, as Dwight mentioned, that was a sustainable fishery in a lot of ways. Or and whether they got better at it because they, they yeah. understood what was happening and changed the technology to allow more fish to pass through that they right. weren't interested in. Right. Or, or you know, hook gear and, and traps, um, widely recognized as a really sustainable gear type, good on the habitat and, and so forth, and a good quality product. That's mm-hmm. that's key, too. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's, there's the, the work that you're doing to help individuals um, to support um, the notion of, of a of fishery that's sustainable, both in terms of fish and, and it. But there's also a conversation that I know you at Penobscot East are doing, and that's a conversation about self-limits. Right. <laughs> in terms of individuals and an in industry. And you, you've pointed to the fact that the lobster lobster community has done that in the past. Mm-hmm. What, what are your hopes that that can happen in, in the ground fishery? You've got to have you've got to have an instruct an incentive structure in place for people to do the right thing, and you've got to have fishermen committed and agreeing that 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 what they're doing is the right thing. It's got to come from the from the fishermen from the mm-hmm. communities, um, you know, not exclusively. I, I I'm not under any uh, illusions that you know everyone is uh, is going to always do the right thing and, you know, all the time because that's certainly not the case anywhere. Um, but if the incentives are there for protecting the, the resource and the proper stewardship, if, if people are working within an area and are making sure to protect that area um, so that they have fish for themselves in the future, so that they have fish for the future generations in their communities, then that's really uh, what's, what's most important is that area-based protection. And again, getting back to uh, um, habitat, the, uh, the forage base, whether it's opening up the rivers or um, catching the herring sustainably. So, And how do folks get in touch if they're interested in, in a specific um, program or Penobscot East in general? How do they get in touch? Yeah, well, give me a call or anybody at Penobscot East Resource Center. We're happy to, happy to talk to anybody anytime at uh, 367-2708. We're um, on Atlantic Avenue, which is near Co-op 2 in Stonington, so feel free to stop by, and you can find us online at uh, www.penobscoteast.org. Great. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East for being our guest in the studio. And our conversations uh, included uh, calls to Dwight Carver, a fisherman from Jonesport, and Steve Brown, a fisherman from Cherryfield. Thanks so much to our underwriters who support this program and to you listeners who um, contribute your support. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Waterfall Arts in Belfast, 